0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. John, let's let's turn to one of the uh, assignments that this General Assembly will have. And that is the uh, addition uh, or the changing of the uh, congressional map uh, because of the fact that we have now qualified for an additional congressional seat in North Carolina. And how that's uh, probably going to, in your opinion, turn out. And who's going to come out the winner? The Democrats or the Republicans?
0: Um, Not having any inside knowledge of this, my, my reading of the situation is as follows. Of course, North Carolina will get a new U.S. House seat that will likely go somewhere in the Piedmont. The growth of North Carolina has not been limited to the Charlotte area and the Triangle area. Okay, there's been lots of growth in, in some other counties, too, here here and there. But disproportionately, the growth really is in that I-85 corridor that stretches from, from Charlotte north and east through the triad region, broadly defined, and then over to the triangle. And I think that the new seat will go somewhere in there. Uh, of course, if you stick a new seat in, you're going to have to change all the other lines. One way to think about this is uh, the populated... Areas of the state. In those places, the congressional districts will shrink; they'll get smaller because there'll be more people in in the location. So you could get to the same uh, average number of of people represented with a smaller footprint. So those districts will get smaller. And whereas the big big lo- sprawling districts in the western part of the state or in the northeast quadrant of the state, the southeast quadrant of the state, they will get a little bit larger in order to encompass more territory so they'll have enough people in them to meet the population standard. So fitting a new district into the, somewhere between Charlotte, the triad, maybe over a little bit east of that, will not be a a challenging thing as far as drawing the map. How squiggly the lines will be and how much they will be rigged to favor either the Republicans in general or particular candidates, we'll just have to see. But the, the redistricting process has now been Uh, quasi-reformed several times by litigation. This happened two decades ago in some litigation that strengthened the county line rule that applies to to legislative uh, districts and congressional maps that more recently Democrats sued uh, the Republican legislature a couple of different ways on redistricting. And one of the outcomes of that was for the 2020 cycle that we just went through last year The maps were redrawn under a process that forbade lawmakers from using some of the data they may have used in the past. They had to do a lot of the work in public as people were watching. There were some other rules having to do with uh, not excessively uh, favoring one faction or the other. And although they are not currently under a court order to do so, the legislative leaders have said they're gonna follow that same process And they get the census data from the federal government and begin to draw maps, which presumably will be this fall. And so I think that while I personally would have liked to have more uh, specific criteria instituted in the state constitution as a constitutional amendment or in some kind of statutory reform of redistricting, that's not what happened. We didn't get that. But we still do have some improvements to the redistricting process out of litigation that I think will limit. Though not eliminate, of course, the effects of gerrymandering.
1: There are those who say that uh, legitimately, uh, and using the criteria that they've used before, that the Republicans will actually gain two seats out of this. Do you see that happening? Um,
0: maybe. If, if, the, if the Republicans draw maps that are expected to or actually produce a net gain of two seats, Uh, uh, that kind of map, not not necessarily because of the net gain, but that map will certainly be litigated. And given recent history, uh, I would be very careful if I was Republicans not to get so into uh, political gain that you end up having your map thrown out. So, So yes, of course, theoretically, you could do that. I'm not sure that will be the outcome in practice.
1: Now, the average is about 800,000 people will be in each congressional district, somewhere around that number. Uh, So metropolitan areas like Raleigh and Charlotte, the Triangle and Charlotte, of course, both of them have uh, considerably more people than that. So the influence of the larger cities uh, like Charlotte and and the Raleigh-Durham area uh, uh, is going to increase. And of course, that will carry over also into the House and the Senate. that's just a fact. And do you think that will major uh, change anything um, in a major way as far as the outcome of legislation that comes out? Well, there will
0: certainly be, if you look at the legislature in particular, uh, where it probably matters more than the congressional map, there will be an increased uh, strength by urban and suburban areas at the expense of rural areas. This has been going on for decades. It will continue. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that urban and suburban areas that are fast growing see eye to eye and they have some inherent tension with rural interests. Actually, sometimes the rural and suburban feel like they have more in common than suburban and urban do. And a lot of times, whether it's redistricting political power or economics or all sorts of other things, we get carried away with this dichotomy between urban and rural. City and country. Uh, the truth is that depending on how you define it, but I think the best definitions would suggest the largest group, the largest uh, slice of North Carolina is suburban. It is not a big city, or at least not the urban core of a big city, and it is not a rural area. It's in between. And a lot of our fast growing counties, places like Cabarrus and Union uh, in the Charlotte area, or the Johnston County area, Johnston County next to the Raleigh area. Uh, there's some counties in the triad that are growing rapidly that are next to Guilford and Forsyth uh, and, and very rapidly growing counties next to Wilmington, Pender and Brunswick counties. These are all places that are not urban. They're not, but they have lots of population growth. I think the fairest way to describe them will be suburban and the suburban lawmaker, if someone represents suburban interests, it's already a significant part of the general assembly and that will grow too
1: one of the hottest and most watched races in the 2022 election cycle will be the uh the current richard burr seat uh how about handicapping that for us right now you've already mentioned a little bit about the three major republican candidates uh let's talk about that not only that but also the Democratic candidates that have surfaced so far and then uh, forecast who you think might run against each other and how that will come out.
0: Well, it's a tall order, but um, no one has ever called me pusillanimous when it comes to going out and making a political Oh, your day. word of the day. What was that again? Well, I, I already used the word verisimilitude. I figured that was my word of the day, but uh, I'll take no, pusillanimous. No. Pusillanimous just means sort of uh, cowardly, timid. Uh, I don't usually do that when it comes to political stuff. So here's what I think. First of all, there are three Democratic names to think about. Uh, Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's clearly running for Senate. Jeff Jackson, state senator from Mecklenburg County, clearly running for Senate. And Erica Smith, former state senator from the the northeastern part of the state, who had run... uh, in 2020, but didn't get the nomination, Cal Cunningham got the nomination. She has said she's running for the Senate, probably intended to, but I'm wondering now, there's some talk that perhaps G.K. Butterfield, one of the Democratic members of the House delegation from North Carolina, may uh, may, may get a different job in the Biden administration in one fashion or the other, and that would open up a seat that is Democratic-leaning where Erica Smith lives, and so if she ran for Congress in 2022 because that seat was open, that would not at all shock me, or maybe even she runs in a special election before we get to 2022. Um, Between Jackson and Sherry Beasley, I think Beasley has a clear advantage. I would expect her to be the Democratic nominee unless something really strange happens. On the Republican side, we've already mentioned Ted Budd, Mark Walker, Pat McCrory. Uh, I would still right now think the edge, at least modestly goes to Pat McCrory, the former governor who's already known statewide and actually pretty well liked across the the, the Republican electorate in North Carolina. But it's also possible Ted Budd could get the nomination because of Trump's support. Either of those facing Sherry Beasley will be one of the most competitive races in, in the United States. We usually have competitive Senate races. We'll certainly have one in 2022. I would tend to give the Republican nominee a slight edge in the general election. For some historical reasons, again, the voters tend to want to balance things out. So right now we have a fully Democratic Washington, Democrat president, Democratic majorities in Congress, or at least sort of a majority in the Senate. I think the repub—I think the swing voter will lean Republican in 2022. That would help whoever the Republican nominee, whether it's Pat McCrory or, or Ted Budd against Beasley. But anything is possible there. And we, we just don't have shoe-in Senate races in, in North Carolina. We just don't have them. We haven't had them in a long time.
1: Well, of course, as uh, we've talked about numerous times, the number of people who are registered unaffiliated in North Carolina continues to rise. Uh, as both some of my friends in both parties say, well, they're obviously leading Democrat or Republican at all, at, at all times. But the fact that they register unaffiliated means that they're up for grabs. So, uh, do you see been continuing a good bit that, uh, we will continue to see more and more people register unaffiliated. This oh, yes. is going to complicate oh, yes. the primary process.
0: Yes, the unaffiliated registration is going to continue to grow. It's going to be the it's going to be the the predominant registration in North Carolina pretty soon. I think. Um, I think well, you're I'm right, sure. and I have said this in the past, and I still would say that most unaffiliated voters are actually partisan voters. They vote pretty reliably Democratic or Republican. They just don't want to belong to the party. And I still believe that. But it's important not to oversell that point. There are still swing voters. And in a place like Alabama, they don't matter. In a place like uh, Massachusetts, they don't matter very much. California, they don't matter. And the reason I say that is because the, the prevailing party in those places, the Republicans in Alabama, the Democrats in California, they're gonna win pretty much all the statewide races with a very few, you have to have a sort of a strange situation like we saw with Doug Jones in Alabama. Uh, so you got a few percentage of swing vote, and even if they swing against the majority party, it's not enough to matter. That is not true in North Carolina, where the two parties have fairly similar bases. If you take their registra- the registered D's and R's, and you add the unaffiliated who lean that way, they start out with a comparable base and that means that, yes, you got to turn your base out and that matters, but swing voters can still tip the outcome. I think that's what happened in 2020. Swing voters tipped the outcome. Uh, they went Democrat for some races like governor. They voted for Roy Cooper and they voted for Tom Tillis for Senate. Uh, that kind of phenomenon will exist in 2022. And so I think those, let's say it's Pat McCrory versus Sherry Beasley. This will not just be a question of turning out your base. It will also be a question of who is considered the most sensible candidate to check and balance power in Washington.
1: Well, we haven't even talked about the uh, gubernatorial race and other up and rising uh, political candidates for both parties. We might do that in the next segment. Uh, as a matter of fact, we will do that in the next segment. Uh, any other observations basically on this uh 2022 election in North Carolina as far as the congressional incumbents? Um, I don't
0: think there will be a whole lot of that. There may be a competitive seat come out of the redistricting process. We'll have to see. But I think right now, most of the seats will probably remain uh, lean R and lean D or solid R, solid D. And that is not simply a gerrymandering construct. That's because different parts of the state have pretty strong partisan leanings right now. You'd have to draw lots of squiggly lines, actually, meandering all over the place to create, you know, five or six competitive seats. And I don't think that's really what North Carolinians want. They don't want districts that, that snake all across the state to try to make some sort of fake constituency fit put, put together. So, so anyway, I, that's where I think we are on that. I think the legislative races Will be competitive but republicans will be favored to hold their majorities and maybe even get to super majorities again in at least one of chambers
1: our guest is john hood a frequent guest on our program we have one final segment and in that segment we're going to be talking about current legislation uh, at the state level amongst other things and we will look forward to doing that when we return right after these messages
0: you wanted to see me yes please have a seat so here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you.
1: You're, you're serious?
0: Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs.
1: I won't let you down.
0: I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council
1: and gradsoflife.org. Watch, you. Watch out! The galaxy is safe once
0: again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by nfamilyfire, Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, is our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week. A reminder, this program comes in two different versions, a full hour version and a number of our markets. And then uh, two of the segments are produced in a half hour version that a number of the affiliates here. And those affiliates, uh, if you're listening to those and you'd like to hear the two segments that you miss, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those segments or if you'd like to repeat the entire broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do that as well. As I said, John Hood is our guest. And John, uh, two things we want to talk about in this session. Uh, One is up and coming political newcomers to the scene, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, people we should keep our eyes on. And the second thing is the uh, current situation with regard to legislation and the state budget. So let's start with that one. Uh, All of a sudden North Carolina finds themselves with uh, far more funds on hand than we thought, plus the fact we've got a lot of federal money coming in. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of a, uh, a very interesting situation where we uh, find ourselves with lots of money and lots of choices. So what do you think is gonna come out of all this?
0: We do have lots of revenue North Carolina has collected, well over $6 billion uh, more in revenue than was originally forecast. For this fiscal year, that's a tremendous amount of revenue. You also have several billions of dollars of federal funds, some of which encumbered, some of which really haven't been encumbered yet. So there's a lot of money out there. I think the General Assembly wants to have still a sort of sustainable rate of annual spending growth in the three and a half percent range or so. I don't remember the exact number, but that's roughly what they want to want to do because they still know that some of this money is one-time money or, or can't be counted on three or four years from now, and they don't want to create an unsustainable rate of increase that ends up causing problems later. But that doesn't mean they're going to spend a lot of this other money in other ways. We're going to put some of the money into savings, which I think is entirely reasonable. We're going to put some of the money specifically into savings uh, to try to cover some of the unfunded liabilities we have for our state employees. Our pension fund is reasonably well-funded, But we've also made promises to public employees in North Carolina to provide supplemental retiree health benefits, supplemental to Medicare. And we don't have any real money, not very much money set aside for that. So that's something we need to be, over the next number of years, really putting away billions of dollars in savings so we can accommodate those retiree health needs as our public employees retire. There's also a lot of interest in infrastructure spending. The governor, Governor Cooper, had proposed a bond package, bond issue, arguing that interest rates are very low. Why not take out lots of debt and do infrastructure projects because the the, the debt payments would be so low? Well, that's not an unreasonable argument, except we already had billions of dollars in surplus that could be used to, as cash to pay for infrastructure. It's, it's great to pay low interest rates. It's even better to pay no interest rates. So I think that that's, the outlines of a deal, there will be some infrastructure spending, there'll be some savings, there'll be healthy increases in in just general state spending for public employees and teachers, raises and some other needs of the state. And then you will also have tax reduction. The Senate has proposed and and enacted or, or passed a version of tax relief that would include phasing out the corporate income tax over several years, reducing the personal income tax rate a little bit more, increasing the deduction, standard deduction and child allowances for families filing state income tax, changing the franchise tax on on business and some other things. It's a big tax package, but I think affordable and some version of that will be in the final budget that goes to Governor Cooper. Now, Governor Cooper is not going to get Medicaid expansion, but he knows that he's not really been this year insisting on that. He would like to do even larger amounts of state spending growth than the legislature will do. That's where the impasse will be. The governor has already said, look, I don't really like your tax package. He's talking to the Republicans. I don't really like your tax package, but we could afford to do it and all the spending I want to do and still have little money left over. And mathematically he's right. So I think he may dig in his heels a bit. Like the Republicans will argue that we don't want to obligate the state too much. Towards annual spending increases off into the future, when we don't necessarily have revenue coming in like gangbusters three or four years from now. So I think they've got an argument. The governor has an argument that suggests that we may have an impasse that lasts uh, through the summer.
1: The rainy day fund, of course, looks like it's going to be the beneficiary of some of this, and that's good because of times it may not always be this good.
0: That's right, and we also sometimes have literal rainy days. We have hurricanes and other events that we need to be able to fund out of savings so we had a reasonable savings account it had been we dipped into it a little bit now we're able to replenish it and add some more to it but like i said i'm even more interested right now and let's have some dedicated reserves so that these retiree health benefits which are you know tens of billions of dollars of promised benefits to public employees i want to make sure five or ten years from now that we're paying those benefits uh somewhat out of savings so we're not eating into the money we need to pay current employees and do current public services and we don't have to raise taxes in 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 five or ten years
1: one of the things that seems to have uh, uh, bipartisan support is the expansion of broadband uh to not only the undeveloped areas but almost even the uh, metropolitan areas have areas within them that doesn't have broadband so broadband seems to be a very popular issue with both Republicans and Democrats.
0: I think COVID-19 reinforced the significance of of broadband. In fact, it made it clear that that in a way, North Carolina abrogated its responsibility to deliver public services like public education. And the reason is there were some places if you went all virtual, that really meant some students weren't learning anything. So I think just as a matter of ensuring that virtual education can be constitutionally supplied. I think lots of Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives, they all favor doing some additional spending. The the divide on broadband used to be that Democrats, generally speaking, were in favor of allowing cities or other governments to themselves own and operate broadband entities. Republicans were against that. There was a ban, not a ban, but essentially a bill that makes it hard for that to happen. Now, because we're not really talking about taking public money and giving it to cities to create broadband or cable systems or something. Now we're talking about a, some sort of combination of grants and subsidies for private companies and private households. That is more saleable across the board. And that's what we're gonna, that's what we've already seen. And we're gonna continue to see more of that.
1: One of the other uh, uh, things that happened during COVID-19 was uh, the advances we made in using telemedicine and uh, that, of course, also depends on broadband. And that also has proven to be very popular as a bipartisan issue.
0: It's popular and in, in that event, which was sort of necessitated by COVID-19, people needed uh, to get advice or get diagnoses or get prescriptions or whatever, and they couldn't go into the doctor. So it was necessitated by COVID-19, but it had the effect of breaking a, a years long log jam. There were patients who weren't comfortable doing Telemedicine, there were doctors and other providers who weren't comfortable. There was a lot of concern about how hey, you'd pay for it because the, the main payment systems, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers, weren't really, didn't have, hadn't figured out how to pay for it reasonably. I think a lot of that has now changed or is in the process of changing in the aftermath of COVID, and we will not go back. So we're going to have a significant amount of delivery of healthcare online. And I think that's pretty much a good thing. I'm glad we got there. Wish we hadn't, I wish I hadn't taken a pandemic to get us there, but that's where we are now. I think that will particularly help in rural areas where it's difficult to sustain a doctor, sometimes even a nurse practitioner in some sparsely populated places. You have to drive a really long way to get to a hospital, get to a doctor, get to a provider. And I think telemedicine will be helpful in those situations, but not just in those.
1: John, I started the program uh, this segment off talking about uh, the two areas that I wanted to advance. One was uh, your uh, assessment of up-and-coming young politicians who we might look at as future leaders of the state, both Republicans and Democrats. Who, who would you name off the top of your head as the ones we ought to watch?
0: Well, there are very many of them, but I would mention a couple of names. Let's start with the Democratic side. Robert Reeves is now the House Minority Leader, replacing the, the former representative, Darren Jackson. Robert Reeves is a very talented Leader for the Democrats, if there was ever to be a Democratic majority in the North Carolina House, he would be a very likely Speaker of the House, and he could be he could be running for other offices too. I'll also mention again Jeff Jackson, the state senator from Mecklenburg County. I don't think he's going to get the uh, nomination for U.S. Senate in 2022, but I still think he's going places. On the Republican side, of course, the lieutenant governor Mark Robinson, elected last year as a political newcomer, is a rising star on the Republican party circuit. Uh, Keep an eye on him. I think he is gonna run for governor or some other office uh, in the near future. And also in the legislature, look at two Johns, John Bell from the Goldsboro area and John Hardister from the Greensboro area. They're both leaders right now in in the North Carolina House. If the current House Speaker, Tim Moore, decides to step down either from his, just from his speaker's role or even out of the legislature altogether, uh, it's very likely that that one of those Johns will be Speaker of the House and the other majority leader, as John Bell already is.
1: We've got about uh, two minutes left. I want to go back now to other legislation uh, that uh, uh, the General Assembly may be looking at uh, in the rest of the session. Anything really important that we need to be concerned about and watch?
0: There are some bills that have to do with public disclosure uh, and I think that lots of media folks, lots of politicos are very interested in these bills. One of them has to do with public employees, which we've always got. We've always got groups that represent public employees, whether they're teachers or state employees, uh, very interested in bills. In this case, that would provide more public access to personnel information, uh, not the whole personnel file, of course. But uh, there has always been some some, dis- some concern and the police issues of the last few years have reinforced the concern that some people have, that public officials, public employees are not always held accountable, and that sometimes people who shouldn't be in positions of authority in in government end up there because not enough is known about their previous track record, that sort of thing. So that's a debate where the, the media is, as usual, for more access. Republicans in general, in this case, are for more access to that information, and Democrats tend to be opposed to it. So another Measure that goes in a different direction that would try to protect donor privacy, money given to 501c3 nonprofits like a lot of the groups that I've been involved in over the years, funding or, or volunteering for. Uh, that's a case where the Republicans tend to argue you shouldn't be piercing that confidentiality for donors, and Democrats tend to be more open to it.
1: Well, that's uh, a nice assessment. Uh, you've got about <laughs> and, and the uh, thing about that assessment?
0: is that the transparency is usually good. Of course, there are cases when you need to be able to shield information uh, from public view if it has to do with sensitive material, you know, actual personnel decisions, lead lawsuits. But that's where there's always been a, a back and forth, and we're going to continue to see that.
1: John, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, time is just about gone. Uh, our program has been produced by Jason Colling, and he promises me that he will have an equally fascinating guest again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, same time, same station, but you and yours have a very good week.
0: Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com.